Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Apurva Desai. And we have a very special guest today because we have someone here who has done or is in the process of doing two master's degrees. So welcome to the show, Joel Siegel. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. We're happy to have you here. And you are studying or you're doing a master's in physical therapy. Is that right? Yeah, physiotherapy. That's really cool. Can you tell us how you got into that field? Yeah, I did my undergrad in kinesiology. I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go with it. You can go into anything sports related, pretty well anything health related. But to be honest, I had a lot of injuries growing up. I never completely got better from them. And so I thought, you know what, why not take it upon myself to try to fix those, not just for me, but for other people too. And then physiotherapy is where I ended up. Did you get physical therapy yourself? That's the funny thing about (laughs) someone who's in physio is I usually get injured and then put it off for about a year until I couldn't take it anymore. Then I went to physio, Mm -hmm. but never right away, never right away. So your uh, path of doing a double master's in physical therapy. How did you decide to do two master's degrees? (laughs) It's a funny question because I feel like it wasn't as much of a decision as it's kind of just what happened. Um, My original degree in muscle physiology at Queen's University. I know that's not Western's favorite other university, but here I am doing (laughs) two. So I started off that master's and then COVID got in the way of us doing actual research in humans, which was our plan the whole time. And that made my degree drag on because my whole project kept on changing and then I wasn't able to actually finish it in time but I'd already been accepted into the physical therapy program at Western Mm -hmm. and I went out on a limb to finish the other masters up part-time while completing physiotherapy full-time because physiotherapy was something I was much more interested in than research. Could you tell us a little bit about the structure of your program? So what do you have to do? Do you have to do coursework? Do you have to do a research project? Uh, What's your day-to-day like? Yeah, we have a really cool program. We have a mashup of half in class and half in the lab. So half of it almost mimics an undergraduate degree where you're in a lecture Mm -hmm. and you're hearing content from different physiotherapy professors, but then the other half is completely lab-based. There's a couple different gyms or places with beds that you go into. And then you learn how to actually do the physiotherapy skills on your classmates. You're both learning and you're also having someone do it to you. So Mm -hmm. you get to learn in different ways. Um, Yeah, that's the main way the program's broken up. And could you speak about the placements that you've been a part of? Yeah, I forgot about that part. (laughs) Um, I actually just finished my my first placement at a physiotherapy clinic in Sarnia, just down the road from London. Um, We do four placements, one in a regular physiotherapy clinic, like say you got injured playing tennis or something and you wanted to go see a physio, that kind of clinic. Um, We do one in a hospital, one placement in acute care. And the final placement is in what we call rehab. So that involves helping individuals with things like spinal cord injuries or strokes. Right. Okay, this is really cool and lots of questions are popping into my head, but let's let's start right from the beginning. What is physical therapy? <laughs> and I know that that is a very big question, but what kind of treatment are you giving to these people? Like what are you actually doing to help them better? Like I know this is kind of a, a word that we hear often like, "Oh, they need physio" or "Oh, I did 6 months of physio." But what actually is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, physio is really cool because it's a mix of all of whole of a whole bunch of different techniques. It has 
what we call motivational interviewing mm -hmm. or behavior change, mm -hmm. or kind of think of cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's almost like an educational approach baked into that. You can have a conversation with a person, person asking them questions about what's going on in their life or what's led them to being in your clinic, mm -hmm. and then helping them find the motivation to change whatever behavior might have led them there, if there was a behavior that led them there. Mm -hmm. There is also something called manual therapy, which is whenever we actually put our hands on people and start stretching them or moving them around, this can help to release tight muscles mostly. So that's not a, it's not a cure by any mm -hmm. stretch. Some people will go see physio, think they're getting moved around and think, oh, this is going to make me completely better. Yeah. But um, it's a helpful adjunct to treatment. And the probably other largest component is exercise. Um, we teach people how to do different exercises to mm -hmm. actually help them use their muscles in the way that they, um, I would say should be, but that's not always possible. So in the way that's most optimal for them. Yeah, see, that's really interesting because uh, physiotherapy, when you think of physiotherapy, that's what you really think of is exercise, right? And But you described two uh, behavior change and um, physical um, and mental fitness as well, that uh, all those factors also affect treatment, right? And, um, you know, coming from the health sciences, that's really um, important to that you noted that. Um, because, um, yeah, we often think of physical therapy as physical, right? As the name suggests, which one of those, it really speaks to you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty tied between education and exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, some things that I tell my clients on placement was perhaps the most important thing. If there's one thing to take away, it's the homework, the homework, the exercises they take home is what's most likely going to get them better. Mm -hmm. But the caveat to that is we're not very good at doing exercises on our own. Mm -hmm. Myself, even professional powerlifters, they need someone like a coach to check in on how they're doing exercises. So you need someone like a physiotherapist or a kinesiologist to help people out with their exercises to make sure they're doing them right and you can change them over time to help them progress and com continue to get better. Right, kind of like a, a relationship that you really build with your patient that I guess might be kind of lacking in other healthcare facilities because it seems like if you go see your family doctor, they kind of know you throughout the years and they're like, here, take this medicine that'll cure your strep throat or whatever. But it sounds like what you're describing with the physiotherapy is like an ongoing relationship that you build with the client. So they have to keep coming back and see how they're doing and how they're progressing. Is there like, does that seem right to you? Like there's an element of, of a relationship with the patient? Definitely. Um, I didn't mention manual therapy in one of my preferences for physio or which jumped out to me most, but when that comes in really handy is during the session. If you're doing something with a client, that's a great time to build that relationship with them, mm -hmm. to hear about what's actually going on in their life. Um, a lot of times, I know myself, if I've been to some kind of healthcare provider, it's usually quick in and out. You don't feel like you actually communicated that much with your healthcare provider, or they might not know what's actually going on with you just mm -hmm. because of how fast the treatment is. Um, but with physiotherapy, you have that chance to continue to build a relationship with your physio. And sometimes with those conversations with patients, something will come up that didn't come up before that will drastically change how you treat them. Mm -hmm. It can even help them to get better. So that's where building that relationship really comes in handy. But something else to add on is that typically we do want to discharge a patient. The goal is to eventually have them 
not have to come back to see us. Yes. Maybe later down the road for a check-in, but we're not trying to hold on to them forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did that uh, translate into uh, practice? So you learned about the theory behind uh, physiotherapy practices and you know building this relationship. How did that translate when you went into practice in your clinical placement? Mm-hmm. It was definitely a big learning curve. In class, the way they prepare us is they give us case studies on this is Jane. Jane is 48 years old and Jane has X condition. And then we'd talk about all the different ways we would interview Jane, the tests we do on Jane, etc. And then getting into clinic, all those things we talked about in class, there's not enough time to do all of it or to mm-hmm. do everything that you'd want to. So trying to condense down what's most important to the client or what's most important to their treatment in a short time frame. One thing that I'm thinking of is the diversity in problems that people might have. Like you could have pain anywhere in your body, right? Like, cause I think like of what people get physiotherapy for, like your back is sore, you hurt your knee or you got injured at work or you're, you're been laying around recovering from an injury and now you got to rebuild your muscles. How do you guys keep it all in? Like, how do you know all of those different things? Like, is it targeted to different regions of the body or uh, is the treatment kind of similar for similar injuries? Like, how do you deal with all the different problems that people could possibly have? It seems like so much. That's probably one of the other biggest takeaways from my first placement was, oh my gosh, imposter syndrome is a real thing. (laughs) Sometimes you don't think you have the knowledge to deal with all the patients coming through your door. In a typical clinic, you could have people coming in with a sports injury, people with, again, stroke-like symptoms. You can have people who might have dangerous red flags that you have to send them off to the hospital. So you have to be on the lookout for all of that. But trying to keep it all in perspective, there's almost this kind of demographics game where you see a patient come in, you see age, you hear about their job, and then you're already thinking about certain kinds of conditions. It's not open to any possible condition, but you're slowly narrowing down your thinking as you're talking with the client to, okay, my list of conditions is slowly decreasing, and now there might be a couple most likely differential diagnoses or different potential things a client might have. So you really have to get good at almost compartmentalizing your thinking or almost following a flowchart in your mind as you're talking to a client. Yeah, there there tends to be, you know, as you described, there tends to be that knowledge to practice uh, gap, you know, what we learn in uh, classes. And then when we have to actually go and apply the knowledge, it's the context matters, right? There are different constraints in the real world, as you described. Um, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So you also did an MSC, is that right? Yeah, I actually just defended my... Queen's Masters last week talking. Congrats. Oh, thank Congrats. you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a long one, a long road. So that degree, originally, it was supposed to be um, research into humans as far as, well, muscle physiology, specifically examining the effects of omega-3 fatty acids on mm-hmm. skeletal muscle protein synthesis. A lot of big words thrown in there, but basically how fish oil can change how you create new muscle proteins and how the proteins get turned into the actual muscle that you have on your body. Because there is a lot of evidence that it can impact um, muscle protein synthesis, the creation of new muscle tissue. But COVID got in the way of that. So 
we tried to salvage some kind of small human project, but it never quite turned out. Um, but I was working on something on the side, which was a systematic review and meta-analysis on something called single-leg disuse. Okay. So that's whenever you take healthy people, you put them in a cast or a brace. Yeah. And there's some funky models where they'd have people just on one elevated shoe and their other leg dangles in space. Kind of funny. Um, but getting all the studies that ever did that healthy people and seeing the declines in skeletal muscle strength and size. And did what happened to the leg that they weren't using? Like, were there massive effects? Yeah. Um, two weeks, the average percentage decline in skeletal muscle strength was 23%, so nearly wow. a quarter. Yeah. In just two weeks? Yeah. That's crazy. And skeletal muscle size in two weeks goes down by 8%. Well, and whenever I'm referring to strength and size, that's quadriceps yeah. right now. Um, so quadriceps size decreases by about 8% after two weeks. That's nuts. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of um, a class I had, Emily, um, in fourth year undergrad, and uh, it was called Exercise in Older Adults. And um, we learned, the day we learned that skeletal muscle decreases in size and strength, I went home and I made sure that I stretch my muscles every day to mm -hmm. ensure that they stay in good I stay in their good books. Um, yeah. what, 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 so obviously that's, that was more out of fear than an evidence-based approach. So what would you say is something we can do when we're not using our muscles? How can we make sure that they stay in uh, good shape? Yeah. Um, the simplest, most blanket answer is to move more often. Mm -hmm. It sounds like an oversimplification, but it's probably the most helpful thing you can do from walking around more to doing more work around the house even. It doesn't necessarily mean going to the gym. It doesn't mean lifting heavy weights so you can't lift anymore, but you need to push yourself a little bit, a little bit every week, and then that will help you to keep the muscle strength and size, which if you want some numbers, because they're still swimming in my head from the yeah, thesis. Yeah, give us the numbers. <laughs> if you're an older adult above the age of 50, you'll lose muscle mass by about 1% per year and muscle strength by about 3%. So that's the importance for exercise for older adults, like you mentioned prior. And can exercising regularly slow that number down, or is that kind of an average for everybody? You're going to lose this no matter what. Mm -hmm. Exercise can mm -hmm. slow it down, but you can't stop the entire aging yeah. process. <laughs> so you can slow it down. You can't stop it completely. Yeah, yeah. But Makes sense. So my stretching is not going to help? <laughs> stretching? Um, stretching will, well, let me take a pause. Stretching will help you keep your muscle length, which is good. Um, but you do want to challenge the muscles as far as how much they're lifting or how hard they're working. So the stretching is good, but you can make it better by challenging them as far as how much work they're doing. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> Just some free <laughs> advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, I wanted to kind of ask about that. Is like, how often do your friends say, like, "Hey, Joel, like my arm kind of hurts. Like, can you help me out with this?" Or how often do they, or do you find yourself giving free physical therapy to your friends? Um, pretty often, to be honest, and I love it. Um, it's just something it's something I'm interested in talking about and clearly they're interested in it if they're asking so you can have some great conversations about it and then it will spiral off into into whatever else so usually you'll give someone a nice little fun takeaway something mm -hmm. simple to do um, but no it's kind of funny I was joking with my fiance that every time we go to see 
one of her friends, a family member. Mm-hmm. You can always guarantee one time someone's going to say, oh, my shoulder, oh, my <laughs> hip. What can I do? Yeah. And you're, like, happy to tell them. You're like, yes, I'll, I'll give you some help. That's yeah. awesome. Tell me more. Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I have another question, too. So. Uh, your work is very related to like daily life, right? Like you say, you need to move more, you need to exercise more. Uh, whereas a lot of people here at grad school, their daily work doesn't really relate to their personal life. Like I study like mitochondria and hummingbirds. That has no relationship with my personal life. Like nothing that I'm doing in the lab actually affects me. Do you feel like you need to exercise more when you're doing this kind of work? Like when you're you're giving advice to patients or you're, you're prescribing these exercises, do you go home and think, huh, maybe should I do that too? Or are you just generally active yourself all the time and it's no problem? Um, a little bit of both, kind of. So myself, I'm almost my own worst patient because like I mentioned at the very, very beginning, there's a lot of old injuries I have kicking around. So it did fuel my interest in learning more because I'd hear something in class and go, oh, I want to try this out. This is something I'm really interested in. So I'd go and try it out, and then I'd see, oh, this is how hard this really is, or this feels really easy as far as doing an exercise. And then you realize, oh, I've been doing it wrong the whole time. So it's an interesting trade in that the more you do it yourself, the better you actually get at helping patients because you have that own personal experience um, that will feed into how you understand what patients are telling you during treatment. Yeah, that's that's great. I love to I love to hear about that. It's good that uh, you're able to take that kind of personal response to it and do the things as well yourself. So, how is the physical therapy program different from the uh, MSc? What is the contributing factor in your journey to physiotherapy? Sometimes, what I found in research is that you're not always going to be helping as many people as you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I talked about omega-3 fatty acids earlier on, and the amount that you actually need to see a really beneficial effect is pretty astronomical. And usually that's not what people are going to be doing. Mm-hmm. And the actual help that someone's going to get is likely going to be quite quite minimal. You might see some retention in muscle mass, muscle strength, but will it really impact their daily functioning? That's where the research is still lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't see too many tangible impacts of it. And research is also very, very difficult to complete. So all the researchers out there have my utmost respect, but I decided I wanted a little bit of a change. <laughs> I wanted to just be able to get in there myself and help people without all the research hoops, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's kind of great, too, because I know a lot of physical therapy, it's a science, right? And it's evidence-based. Like, the things that you're doing with your patients are stuff that's been backed up by the science. So I think it's really cool that you have that background, that you've done some of that research yourself, and then you can uh, go and translate it uh, into the field. Uh, so, I okay, switching gears a little bit, I want to ask about uh, how the treatment might differ if you have someone who is injured versus someone who... Uh, just has pain for no reason. Is there any kind of overlap between those two things? Or like, because I know sometimes people will be like, I played tennis and I have tennis elbow. (laughs) Is that a thing? Yeah, it is a thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but then other people might be like, I just have a sore elbow and I don't know why. How do you approach those kind of things? Because sometimes I hear people talking about unknown reasons for pain and I feel like that must be so difficult to treat. It's definitely a lot. It makes our job more difficult when someone doesn't know why they have some kind of pain going on. Injuries or knowing someone has an injury really helps you to focus your questioning and your testing later down the road. But if you don't know why someone has pain, 
usually we just ask a couple more questions about what happened before. Because mm-hmm. there's likely a reason someone's got pain in the joint. Let's take the elbow with the example of tennis elbow. Yeah. Or not tennis elbow in this case because they don't know why the injury happened. But they have elbow pain. You might ask them, have you ever had an injury trip to your elbow before? They might say no because that's why they're curious about it. Yeah. But then we'll move up and down from the elbow joint. We might move to the wrist or the shoulder and ask if they've had a wrist or shoulder injury before. Mm. Most times, or not most times, sometimes you'll hear a yes. And it's kind of funny. The injuries at one joint will usually end up traveling really? or they have effects at other joints. A lot of people don't, and we're myself, I'm still learning what different injuries, say something like older adult with frozen shoulder, if they don't use that shoulder as much, they'll see that they have some elbow pain because their arm muscles have gotten weaker, or they're just using their arm different than they did before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I did not know that. That's a really interesting finding. Um, could you uh, speak about how that complicates things with the uh, patients so when you're working with patients and you they have a certain injury you have uh, the complication of the fact that it could travel so yeah you could if you could speak a little more about that yeah for sure Um, this we see this pretty commonly in older adults who might have hip or knee osteoarthritis so that's usually when older adults might be talking about hip or knee replacements those two joints are the ones we'll most often see interplay with as far as a knee injury might cause hip away later on or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon now to see older adults getting all four of the joints replaced in yeah. succession. Um, and sometimes we don't know which came first. We don't know which to treat first. So we'll treat both at the same time because we're not really in the ball game sometimes of diagnosing mm-hmm. um, whenever it's very confusing. We're in the ball game of helping to improve symptoms and functioning, how someone completes their activities of daily living. Yeah. How closely do you guys work with physicians? Because I know sometimes people can get referred to a physiotherapist and they can their doctor orders that, okay, you need to, to work on this. But how much conversation is there back and forth between like the primary health giver and the physio guy? Because it seems like they're they're so connected, right? The treatment, you, you got to treat both things at the same time, like the cause of the injury and then the recovery. Is there a lot of communication back and forth or do you think it could be improved? Um, I think communication could be improved. Whatever I, or what I saw most in my first placement was actually communicating and writing. So patients would come in with a script from their doctor for Mm -hmm. physiotherapy, for a strained rotator cuff, for a torn rotator cuff. Um, And they didn't know anything about physiotherapy. Their doctor just wrote them a paper, and here they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll communicate back to the doctor in writing. So say someone has something going on in their lower back and we suspect that they need imaging to see what is going on because it's more of a serious, serious injury. We'll write a polite and well-worded note to the doctor suggesting that our testing indicates that imaging would be useful for directing Mm -hmm. further treatment. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that we think something exists, so they need imaging. Mm -hmm. We're suggesting that imaging would be helpful because the doctor controls. Right. The imaging. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit of polite <laughs> polite play between both professions. So, uh, Joel, what is next for you after the master's? That is a great question. Um, there's a physiotherapy exam 
that all of the students take if you want to practice in Ontario. What's that like? What are what, what are the components of that? Is it multiple choice or is there like an in-person one? Mm-hmm. There's a written component and there's a practical component. Or, well, last I heard the practical, practical component had changed to being almost an interview. Oh. Um, that one I have conflicted feelings about myself. I'm not sure which I'd prefer, a practical or the interview about hypotheticals of what you would do. Uh, like right. case study sort of thing? It's almost like a verbal case study. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's what the practical looks like for physiotherapists. So we can take that at the end of our degree, and then we can actually get a provisional license to practice before all of the paperwork comes through. If there's a clinician who trusts you, pretty well because you're working under their um, under their authority mm-hmm. but then after that you can just start practicing once you get fully approved from the College of Physiotherapists so my plan is to just apply around I don't have a fully formed plan yet <laughs> yeah, that's okay. you it's, still got another year is that right of the yeah, program yeah. yeah there's still another year to figure that out and you're doing different placements right so you want to try and see which one you like the best is it is in general do you feel like physical therapists work like either in a clinic or in a hospital like you choose one of those two things or do you kind of get moved around mm-hmm. some physios will they almost switch jobs every couple of years. They might go into private practice, working in just a regular clinic, and then they'll want to change your scenery and go work in a hospital. But there's usually some element of specialization, as in people don't typically go to different clinics throughout the week. Like some doctors will go to different practices throughout the weeks. Mm-hmm. Physiotherapy isn't quite like that, where we have almost preferences. Mm-hmm. Most people, from what I've heard in our program, want to go to a clinic. So yes. clinic is the most popular by far. And then things like hospitals or rehab are the the lesser chosen of the <laughs> disciplines. Yeah. And so you just finished your, your clinical one. Are you looking forward to the other two, seeing what they're like? Mm-hmm. I'm actually leaning more towards acute care or yeah. hospital right now. And that's what I'm, I think my next placement is going to be based off of the paperwork that I filled out. High chance it's going to be that one. So... We'll see how it goes. I'm excited, though. For our final question, because we're almost out of time, how could we avoid physical therapy if possible? Like, what would be <laughs> yeah. your just general advice to to help us not have to do that? Mm-hmm. I'd say move more often. Move and more if often. you're starting something you haven't started before or you're doing something more strenuous that you haven't done in a long time, start slower than you think you might need to. So start gradually. Don't hop into something faster than you need. Because that's when people will see injuries turn up, especially as we get older. We think, ah, I can still do what I did as um, as I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I feel funny saying this at the age of 25 because <laughs> I've definitely hurt myself doing things I thought I could do. And I'm still young, so mm-hmm. we'll see what 50 looks like for me. Um, but yeah, start slow. And it's not a bad thing to start slow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joel. It's been awesome to have you on the show. No, thank you guys for having me. Of course. I will take us out. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson. My co-host was Apurva Desai, and we've been speaking with Joel Siegel. And this episode is produced by me, Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get into contact with us, you can email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM, and you can find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.